Welcome to A Matter of Law, a Hogan Lovell series that takes a deep dive into the latest developments that are shaping the legal world. Our team of lawyers will provide insight into crucial and rapidly evolving issues and address the risks that can lead from the boardroom to the courtroom. The global economic outlook is murky at best, and trying to navigate through those muddy waters is a growing challenge for businesses around the world. We're witnessing geopolitical turmoil, rising inflation, and a steady increase in interest rates. So what are companies doing to combat all of this uncertainty? Many are cutting initiatives that they believe aren't core to the business. One that may end up on the chopping block is DEI. I'm Sophie Isabel Horst, counsel at Hogan Lovells and today's moderator. In this podcast, we hear from our employment experts Anvita Sharma and Tao Lung, as well as Chris Fulwell, Uber's Head of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for EMEA. Chris joined Uber after championing diversity policies at John Lewis and was nominated Diversity Champion of the Year by the British Diversity Awards in 2020. I'll hand it over to Anvita and Tao. DEI is such a crucial topic, and the thought that companies may consider putting those initiatives on hold because of the recession is concerning. We see so many benefits when companies embrace DEI. It can create a more resilient business, it helps build a positive brand, it helps in attracting and retaining top talent, and at the end of the day, it has a positive impact not only on the workforce, but also on the bottom line. I completely agree, Tao. Clients I'm speaking to say that DEI remains the top priority for them. But with so many competing priorities and challenges faced by um, global economic uncertainty, it can be difficult to keep it at the forefront of an organization's agenda. We had the chance to sit down with Chris Folwell, who spent years working in DEI across a number of companies, most recently Uber. And Chris gave us his perspective on how a recession might impact DEI. Well, I think that lack of appetite can be kind of a consequence of economic turmoil. But I think it's important for DEI leaders, HR leaders, and any kind of allies within the operational leadership realm within businesses to push on this subject more. When you look at DEI, you've got diversity, you've got equity, and you've got inclusion. And all three elements of this subject matter are really important. But for me, personally, when we think about the impacts of economic turmoil on society, the E is the most important part when we, when we talk about economic challenges. Because economic challenges will disproportionately impact those on lower incomes. Um, and that community across multiple sectors tend to be the most diverse relative to other sections of the workforce. Speaking from a legal standpoint, intersectionality and socioeconomic disadvantage are actually just not protected. They're not really recognised as characteristics. So I would say when advising clients, it's a mistake to try and stick rigidly to the characteristics that are recognised by law because you are actually missing out on a lot of the nuances and some of the, the most disadvantaged groups in, in our society. And Vita, that's an excellent point. One of the key goals of DEI initiatives is fostering a culture and environment where multiple different points of view are considered. Countless studies have demonstrated time and time again that diverse groups tend to be more innovative and profitable because different ways of thinking often lead to better and more holistic solutions. 
But diversity of thought isn't just limited to characteristics which are protected by law. And especially in today's economic climate, experiences based on differing socioeconomic backgrounds can often be just as varied than differences arising out of legally protected characteristics. Limiting the parameters of what it means to be diverse to only characteristics which are legally protected misses a significant opportunity to benefit from having a truly diverse workforce. I guess there are so many factors to consider here when it comes to having a successful DEI strategy. And it's not just because it may be a business imperative or a legal obligation. Chris told us his passion for DEI is a more personal one. I'm a gay man. I grew up in the United Kingdom and went to school in the United Kingdom in the 1990s and early 2000s. And there was legislation that existed at that time in the UK, um, Section 28, I believe it was called, which prohibited schools and other local institutions from talking about anything other than heteronormative relationships, partnerships. Sex education was limited to just heterosexual relationships. So that created a whole generation of young children and young adults as they grew older that felt quite lonely and isolated. So it's a big personal thing for me of, of wanting to make a difference so that future generations don't need to experience stuff like that. But certainly from a legislative perspective, the business case for organisations to care about diversity of their workforce and well-being of their workforce and people feeling that they belong is kind of old hat. Like the business case has been proven for a number of years, if not decades. It's great to hear Chris's personal perspective on why DEI is important to him. Everyone is different, and every company is different in how it embraces DEI. On one end of the spectrum, some companies view DEI initiatives as a luxury and implemented only in response to a specific event or scandal or a specific demand from shareholders or the public. On the other end of the spectrum, there are companies where DEI is such a moral and business imperative and is so embedded in the company's cultural fabric, it can hold comparable standing to the company's profit and loss numbers. Having said that, the majority of companies often fall somewhere in between those two spectrums, recognizing the value add of DEI initiatives, but having varying levels for varying reasons of commitment to furthering and advancing such initiatives. We asked Chris what Uber stands on DEI is and how it differs from other organizations that he's worked with. Uber's relationship with DEI is an interesting one. And a lot of the structure that exists, my team in particular, but many other teams within Uber, the emphasis that the top table give to the subject matter is born out of um, scandal, really. In 2017, in the United States, there was quite a widely publicized whistleblowing incident with a senior female engineer that experienced discrimination in the organization. And that came out in the public because they spoke to the media after consistently trying to make changes within the business at that point. And so the maturity level that Uber has in, in DEI as a result of that five or six years later is, is really impressive. And that moment, that scandal, in essence, served as the catalyst for Uber to fundamentally change its organizational system so that all elements of the business took DEI seriously. Uh, whereas previous organizations that I've worked in before have reacted to kind of an external stimuli. Um, so when I worked in the John Lewis partnership, the focus on diversity, equity and inclusion came about after the murder of George Floyd in the United States. And so the direction of travel and the way that the John Lewis partnership, with my help and a few others, set up their DEI strategy and direction was very different to how Uber approached that subject matter because of the kind of the reasons why it became a focus in the first place. 
It is interesting, Tal, because it does sometimes take a scandal or a hit to a company's reputation to make them sit up and take notice of DEI. Often, an internal investigation into conduct or harassment issues in the workplace or a big piece of litigation can result in a company-wide review of practices and consideration of systemic issues that may be impacting the workplace. I've certainly seen that in the last few years, especially with the evolution of procedures and safeguards to combat sexual harassment in the workplace, for example. When advising clients, we ask them to not only focus on protected characteristics, i.e. characteristics that are recognised under law, but to look beyond them to what may be on the horizon. Chris told us that Uber does just that and actually uses resource groups to help. Within the organisation, we have various employee resource groups. Some of them cover protected characteristics from the Equality Act, some don't. And one of them is called Equal at Uber, which is around socioeconomic disparity and privilege and understanding uh, what we can do to support people from different socioeconomic backgrounds to get in to Uber and progress in the organisation. So whilst we don't set kind of targets for socioeconomic representation of different types of socioeconomic backgrounds, we work internally with our employee resource groups, our our leadership teams and any NGOs within particular markets to provide support informally that wouldn't necessarily put us in legal hot water, but still provides us the opportunity to support communities that we know would benefit from that support. We also asked Chris about the benefits of creating an inclusive work environment and got his thoughts on whether business leaders thought the financial incentives outweighed the personal ones. So I think it depends on who you're speaking to, really. Some will be more persuaded by the economics and the numbers and the data-driven stuff around the difference it can make to a bottom line. Others will be caring more about the human experience and what it does to feelings of well-being and the impact of that on productivity and collaboration and innovation. Uh, And then there'll be other leaders that will be a mix of the two. I'll switch up my style and, and talk in a different way about the subject because I'm wanting to get to my end goal with that leader Um, with that area of the business of creating and fostering an inclusive environment for workers. But how you get there might look different depending on where that business area is, the people within it, the maturity of that business area. Chris highlights an important point, which is in order to have a truly successful DEI strategy, it's critical to get buy-in from all stakeholders. And by all stakeholders, I don't just mean buy-in from the C-suite, although that's certainly the absolute minimum, given they have the ability to provide the resources needed for a company's DEI initiatives to succeed. Rather, a successful DEI strategy requires buy-in from everyone, ranging from those that will be tasked with executing the strategy to the broader workforce of the company that will ultimately be the true judge of whether the company's DEI initiatives are viewed as successful. But in order to get that buy-in, a company needs to understand and listen to what is important to each stakeholder and devise a plan to address those specific goals or concerns. I completely agree, Tao. I think something else that's key here is building a successful strategy. It may seem like an obvious point, but in order to ensure your business is committed to DEI, you really need to have a clear strategy with targets milestones and you know a path in place to achieve those milestones and i found it really interesting to hear chris discuss how uber structures its own dei strategy and what works for them i think the way that uber structures its strategy in the first place is really helpful because it's not particularly complicated to understand so uber splits out the work that it does 
DEI-wise into three main buckets. One is about the workforce, one is about the workplace, and then one is about the marketplace. And that then helps us to decide as a DEI team, also as a broader business, where we want to put our focus at a particular moment. Some of the things that we're doing within Europe, Middle East, Africa, which is where my responsibility lies, is we focus on a few key things across a number of those pillars, one being female representation across our employee base through ensuring a better candidate mix, and then also looking at safety from an earner perspective. So Uber does a lot of focus groups with its driver partner population to understand what's important to the earners on the platform to make improvements to the app, but also the products and services that Uber provide to them. And one of the things that came out quite interesting from our female earners is the notion of safety, particularly in big cities, particularly at certain types times of the day. And so the product equity team that exists at Uber has taken that feedback and has built a trial that's gone live in a number of markets all over the world to support female earners to, at any point, be able to select the gender of the rider that they give a trip to. And being able to remove that barrier to provide them more choice allows those people to earn more on the platform, which is ultimately what we're there to do. We're there to provide that opportunity for people in whatever capacity we can. That's great that Uber has a clearly delineated DEI strategy for different aspects of its business. One roadblock I find some of our clients have is even if they have good strategies, it's the tracking the efficacy of such strategies due to data collection issues. In the US, for example, companies are mostly reliant on voluntary disclosure from employees and applicants, given that companies should not require employees to disclose DEI-related information. Companies that are often the most successful in gathering this data are those that are transparent and clear about why the data is being collected, what it's being used for, and how the data furthers the company's DEI goals. A company's track record for its commitment to DEI will also play a role in how effective the company's data collection efforts will be. If employees see that the company is in fact committed to DEI, the more likely an employee will be willing to disclose such information to further the company's goals. We asked Chris how Uber deals with data collection. So voluntary disclosure is quite high across a number of demographics in Uber, which is really positive. But Uber, just like any other business, would have been on the journey with that. And completion rates two to three years ago with that survey were significantly lower because it was a new thing and people didn't understand the reasons why Uber was asking that question. It's all very well and good collecting data, but if you don't show what you've used it for at an aggregate level and the impact of those people sharing that data, it doesn't give people faith that it's being used in the right way. I think it's important to communicate really clearly with people why that data is being collected and show the impact of that data being collected and what it's used for in a positive way. This has been such a great discussion and great insights from a company that is always challenging itself and really taking DEI as a priority within the entire organization. Let's end this podcast with some top tips from Chris and Anbita on what companies should be considering when trying to tackle their own DEI strategy. Start with getting your C-suite to buy into it because if your C-suite sings the same tune when it comes to this subject matter, lots and lots of barriers in the organization will be removed in and of itself. My second piece of advice is to base it in data that you have. If you have any other data, like hard data around representation of different demographics and showing maybe what your business looks like 
versus the benchmark in your industry or what the best in your industry look like to show a comparison is really powerful. And I said at the start, it is really important to re-emphasize it regularly because people forget and, and people don't sometimes care that much about it as a subject in general. So bringing it back to, it will help the business to thrive. And also it's fantastic to do because we should be helping other human beings. It's really helpful to do. And then when you're starting, start really small. Choose something that's relatively simple to achieve. Set a time stamp for it. Work really hard to deliver that and then show the impact of it. My tips would be to first analyze your data and look to things like exit interviews and employee surveys to better understand your workforce and what their concerns may be. Second, based on those concerns and that analysis, come up with two or three realistic goals for your strategy. And finally, ensure that you have an infrastructure in place for DEI, meaning there are appropriate channels where you can escalate issues and individuals at every level of the organization are held accountable for pushing forward the DEI agenda. Thank you for joining us. For more information on this podcast or any other topics we've covered so far, head to the website hoganlovells.com.